Hi, I'm Katie Bravo, and I'm co-curator of Barflies, the live reading series held at Valley Bar in downtown Phoenix. Each month, we give writers a theme and invite them to tell their true stories on stage. This episode's theme is not as advertised. In our first piece, James Allers gets schooled by Harvard's elite. This is imposter syndrome. The class of 2007 assembled dutifully in Harvard's illustrious Memorial Hall, a cavernous Victorian Gothic structure with an air of solemnity permeating every rafter and dark stained pew. The hall was built in the 1870s to honor the university's Civil War dead and had been the site of orations from the likes of Winston Churchill, Martin Luther King, and Mikhail Gorbachev. I didn't know the history at the time, but it sure seemed like a place for momentous occasions. We sat wrapped before Dean Elena Kagan, waiting for her words of wisdom to inspire us to greatness as we embarked on our law school careers. The competition is over, she pronounced. You won. I allowed myself a swell of pride, and I sat in wonder at how, at age 31, I came to be a first-year student at Harvard Law School. I wasn't supposed to be here. Harvard Law School rejects about nine out of every 10 applicants, and the anointed 10% boast stratospheric levels of academic, athletic, and personal success. Academically speaking, I was a good but unexceptional student at Centerville High School in suburban Dayton, Ohio, where I graduated 50th out of a class of 500. Consequently, I did not attend an Ivy League caliber college. I attended a state school, Miami University in quaint Oxford, Ohio, a fine academic institution to be sure, but also an unabashed party school with a deeply rooted and extremely creepy devotion to so-called Greek life. <laughs> a running joke on campus in the early 1990s was, how many Miami students does it take to screw in a light bulb? 11, one to hold the light bulb and 10 to drink until the room starts spinning. <laughs> I managed a 3.9 GPA at Miami, mostly by being an English major. As for athletics, I omitted my soccer career from my Harvard application, sensing, I think correctly, that my on-field heroics as a utility player in the Centerville Rec League and Miami intramural system would fail to impress. <laughs> my personal accomplishments might best be judged by my early career as a journeyman news reporter in Muncie, Indiana, Santiago, Chile, and Mesa, Arizona. I'm not bragging when I say I changed the course of the publications I worked for. <laughs> Three out of five of them went out of business. <laughs> the last of these was the East Valley Tribune in Mesa. <laughs> I won a few Arizona Press Club awards there in 1999 for writing about exploitation of undocumented Mexican laborers after which my editors directed me to focus on matters of greater concern to our readers, such as whether gas prices had gone up or down that week. <laughs> and that was about the time that I decided to take the law school admissions test. I had never excelled at standardized tests, but somehow I crushed the LSAT. 
Even then, my score was still in the bottom quartile for Harvard Law School applicants. If all that wasn't enough to doom my long shot application, I missed the application deadline by a week. <laughs> so how the hell did I get here? Supposing my acceptance wasn't an actual mistake, like somebody put the paper in the wrong stack kind of mistake, I could only conclude that I got diversity points for being an older student with lots of work experience who came from Arizona, a state that is not exactly churning out Harvard grads. <laughs> that, and I wrote a pretty clever admissions essay. A couple years into law school, I was flattered to be asked to submit my essay to be published in a compilation by the Harvard Crimson newspaper. 55 successful Harvard Law School application essays. What worked for them can help you get into the law school of your choice. I anxiously awaited notice, awaited notice of its publication, then rushed to the Harvard Square bookstore to see my work in print. I quickly flipped through the pages and found my piece grouped in a section called Climbing the Mountain. <laughs> this is how my essay began. As a boy, I tended to fall asleep suddenly in unusual places. I once fell asleep as I crawled up the stairs of the family home, my upper body just onto the carpeted landing of the second floor. I once fell asleep at the bottom of a slide in our backyard in broad daylight. <laughs> then there was the time I disappeared for hours while my mom and dad, siblings and neighbors searched for me frantically. I was blissfully unaware of the fuss as I slept under the couch. <laughs> I used to think that I must have had narcolepsy. Now I think that I was just bored. I went on to explain how boredom had driven me to, quote, the restless pursuit of new and purposeful challenges that has taken me down many unexpected paths. I described how each new personal and professional pursuit had led to grand adventures. I concluded, I can't imagine what life will bring next, but I'm staying wide awake to find out. I beamed as I stood there in the bookstore stacks with my soon-to-be-famous essay, then I turned my attention to the commentary at the bottom from a Harvard undergrad reviewer. Review by Nicholas K. Tabor. What's true for a newspaper article is true for an application essay. A good introduction is key, and James definitely has one. His description of his childhood pseudo-narcolepsy is punchy, <laughs> eloquent, and amusing. As you write your own essay, you should work similarly to grab your reader's attention. That Nicholas K. Tabor sure had an eye for great writing. <laughs> I was feeling pretty proud of myself. And then came this. James spends the remainder of his personal statement fleshing out the details of his professional career that he would have already submitted on his resume. He provides less of an exploration than a laundry list peppering the essay with self-serving quotations. <laughs> the essay leaves us understanding James as a resume grubber. <laughs> now, until that moment, I had never heard the epithet resume grubber. It struck me with brute force. 
grubber hit my ear as grubby, and I felt dirty, like I'd been caught passing off a cheap parlor trick as real magic. I had been duped into sharing my successful essay just so it could be ripped apart in public. The insecurity that I never belonged at Harvard to begin with came flooding back. All along the path, there had been daily reminders that my intellect paled against the brilliance of my classmates. There was Ezzy Soloveitchik, who could debate complex questions of criminal law with our professor while watching a Chicago Cubs game on his laptop. There was Erica Harold, a former Miss America and a much better student of contract law than me. There was Charles Duong, whom I encountered one crisp fall day on the quad, holding his hand out to some squirrels gathered expectantly around him. Feeding the squirrels, Charles? I asked stupidly. No, Charles responded. I'm redistributing these nuts to a higher valued user. <laughs> it's law and economics. The air at Harvard is rarefied, and it can be stifling. You keep climbing the mountain, as the Harvard Crimson put it, but no level of accomplishment is enough. You always fall short of the summit. I entered my final year of law school with a job at a prestigious firm already secured, so I decided to skip the recommended federal courts course and instead take law, psychology, and morality, and exploration through film with Professor Alan Stone. We watched foreign films while drinking wine, wrote reviews about them, and discussed the reviews while drinking wine. It was fun, which is a commodity in short supply in law school. But it was Professor Stone's wisdom that made the class memorable. He was a joint professor of law and psychology and had been around Harvard since he was an undergrad there himself when he had played on the football team with Bobby Kennedy. One day in class, he told us, the fear of every Harvard student is that you will be discovered for the fraud you are. Nervous giggles rippled through the classroom, followed by uncomfortable silence. I took comfort in Professor Stone's soft rebuke because it reminded me that I was far from alone in my insecurity. My fraud is not that I got into Harvard on a cosmic coin flip. The fraud would be fooling myself or others that my admission meant that I had been anointed, that I deserved to be here. That I never expected to be among the Harvard elite was a blessing because I felt genuinely lucky to be there, learning, debating, and drinking beer with exceptional people. My deepest satisfaction from having gone there is not that it burnished my resume, but that it both humbled and empowered me. It made me believe that I could be more than what I had imagined for myself. So, Nicholas K. Tabor, if you're out there, screw you, I won. That was James Allers. Next, Trajan Dunkley discovers the ugly side to speech and debate in Speechless. I'm sitting in an impossibly chic little cafe in downtown Phoenix, sipping at my two bitter latte. Baristas in these places spend more time on their foam art than their brewing and charge accordingly. 
Five years ago, I wouldn't have imagined myself in this spot. I wouldn't think I'd still be in Arizona, a Sun Devil alumni. It seems like every fear 17-year-old me had, I'd fulfilled. <laughs> An even bigger disappointment is who sits across from me, pretending her tiny egg sandwich is substantial. Alexa Coran, the demon of my senior year nightmares, my rival, my enemy, and now my friend. She's still impossibly beautiful, but softer, more natural, more confident. I remember her at speech national finals looking like Jackie O Jr. in her powder blue suit, her, ro her rouged cheeks, a pageant doll a goddess. She's living her version of my dream, living and working in LA, getting published in Vogue Italia, photographing web series stars. It's still easy to hate her and want to be her. I hate what they did to us, she says, almost out of nowhere. I don't need to ask who they are. I wanted to be your friend so badly. I thought you hated me. My coach said you hated me. Mine too. The Capulets and the Montagues, an ancient feud played out with speaker points. I joined the speech team my sophomore year of high school. At that point, I was the certified weird girl at school and had a hard time finding my place. The friends I'd had in middle school were floating away and I couldn't find new ones to fill the void. I spent most of my lunches in the library where the books would always be there. When auditions for the musical came up freshman year, I jumped at the chance, hoping the theater club would be where I would find my footing. I didn't get in, but I was a shoo-in for the student-directed one-acts where my less-than-stellar dancing skills weren't such a huge deal. My drama teacher practically begged me after my performance, begged me to join after my performance in the one-acts. Even then, I think he saw me, I think he saw in me his golden goose. The charger girl that would show the circuit that we were more than just middle-class underdogs floundering next to the prep schools and their national championship coaches. I wanted to prove him right. I wanted to prove everyone else wrong. Everyone who thought I was just a bookish, loudmouth weirdo. My dad, eternally disappointed in my gender. My peers who only noticed me to mock me. I wanted to be someone great. And for two years, I was. When the outround banners fell down, my name, always, oh, my name always appeared, at least for semis, usually for finals, too. I took my wins with gracious pride and the first few times an extreme amount of tears. I earned the loving moniker pterodactyl face after an ugly cry during the awards ceremony found its way on Facebook. <laughs> my team loved me. My opponents feared and respected me. I was the pride of Division I. To this day, one of the schools I challenged remember my pieces, my skills, and me, 10 years on. My senior year, after a mix of increased school funding and a circuit-wide endorsement of our skills, our, our team got moved to Division Two, the big dogs. The winter and spring invitationals that had once been such a piece of cake for us would now be overrun by the prep schools we so feared and loathed. I had no fear, though. I knew I was their match. What would stop me from quickly crushing them? 
the first practice of the year, my coaches presented me with a list of competitors to watch out for. This one had gotten to finals at Harvard. This one had gone to George Mason that, that summer, the MIT of speech camps. I was ready for them all. They didn't tell me about Alexa. I met her for the first time in a round, and her piece brought me and herself to tears. I saw her silently weeping after the round, trying not to muss her mascara. I'm sorry, I just, I miss my cousin. He died of AIDS, and her piece about a Midwestern mother mourning her dead boy was in commemoration of him. I hugged her, and I thought he'd be proud. After prelims, my coach came up to me, compared my scores to her, and said, she's the one to beat this year. Ambition overtook compassion from that moment on. I saw in her everything I wanted to be. She had the perfect speech boyfriend. She had beautifully tailored suits. Her secret, she said, the clearance sale at Macy's. <laughs> she could afford the camps I never could, had the rich friends I'd never had, had her own car. I'd scroll through her Facebook and Instagram and try to find the secrets to her beauty, find the chinks in her facade. I thought if I could break her open, all her falseness would come spilling out and she'd stop winning every tournament and stealing my well-deserved limelight. I was so fucking bored of that piece by the end, she said. She's swirling her iced coffee, finding the last drops of caffeine among the melting ice. They cut all the soul of, out of it by the end. It was manufactured to win. It didn't matter what I said as long as I paused for five seconds at the right place. I knew the feeling. My piece was chosen to win championships, a famous memoir by a wealthy widow. I barely understood the words of the book, but I knew where to cut to manipulate judges. I knew how to pantomime taking off a wedding ring, have my tears stand on my eyes but never fall. Tears were a prop, and props were forbidden. <laughs> but where was the soul by the end? My coaches lambasted me for being stiff, for forgetting the character. Where's the heart? Do you even like her? Well, they took the heart from me. You don't need a heart to win. Just clean pops. As Alexa kept getting firsts over me and I kept floundering, all I could focus on was getting to nationals. If I got to nationals, the first McClintocker of my generation, I'd prove myself, I'd prove that it was all worth it. It was the only thing that mattered. It was the only way I could justify my existence. And I didn't even make it out of sums at the qualifier. I lost in prelims. And I broke. I walked into school the next day, unable to speak, a cloud hanging over my eyes. Every time one of my well-meaning friends or teachers asked how quals went, I had to stave off tears and barely whisper fine, although I was anything but. Three years of hard work and sacrifice wasted. My glory gone. And of course, she was going. She was going to nationals and she was going to triumph and my life was over. I didn't get out of bed the week of nationals. I found out she got second in the nation and through my bitter tears, all I could think was, thank God that bitch didn't win. 
I found her Tumblr that last summer of senior year, the blogging site where all the sad girls go to vent their troubles. <laughs> I found the most shocking things imaginable on her page. She had painful periods and acne scars and a troubled relationship with her mom. She felt too fat some days, too short the others. She was a dork in high school as well. Her only friends were in speech and those not very good ones. She worried that her art wasn't enough. She hated the college she was at. I found out to my eternal horror that she was just a girl. Like me, she was a lonely, anxious, strange 18-year-old girl who wanted to prove everyone wrong. So I started messaging her anonymously at first about how much I loved her page and her art and how much I related to her. <laughs> then finally, I attached my screen name. And finally, I said, I don't know if you remember me. We did speech together. I, I did the Joan Didion piece. We had all the hallmarks of internet friendship, sharing memes back and forth, sad girl singer-songwriters, Encouraging messages to sad posts, endless heart emojis on each other's selfies. She became my friend, a truer friend than I had known in years. I coached for my old high school for a few years, and when my coach found out that I was talking to Alexa, he looked at me quizzically and asked, how can you be friends with her? She was always such a bitch. I thought back to times she actually had been a bitch. We only talked rarely, but she was always kind. Complimented my terrible Goodwill suit. Gave me small pointers for my piece. The monster I saw in her was of my own creation, exacerbated by my coaches. I went home that night and wondered how a teacher could call a 17-year-old girl a bitch. And I stopped coaching after the next tournament. She grabs my arm as we walk out of the cafe and hugs my shoulder. I'm glad we did this. I always wanted to do this with you. I always thought you were so much cooler than me. I never thought you'd ever want to hang out with me. I can't help laughing. We're speech kids. I don't think any of us actually qualify as cool. <laughs> she laughs too. Not her stage laugh, not her gracious winner's laugh a full-bellied cackle. Thank God. Thank God. That was Trajan Dunkley. Now, let's listen to Amanda Kerberg as she steps out of her comfort zone and into some elf ears in Know Thy Elf. Atlanta is sweltering with late summer heat as crowds descend for Dragon Con, a massive media and comics convention that draws about 80,000 people annually. Or, as unsuspecting tourists know it, why our waiter is dressed like Spider-Man in September. <laughs> the convention takes over downtown, scattering programming from panels to concerts to parties across all the major hotels. Imagine you're squeezing past a conga line of Deadpools, 
when you run into a spontaneous jumble of people cosplaying as Rick from Rick and Morty, along with just one guy dressed as Morty, shivering as he whines, Aw, jeez, too many Ricks. <laughs> In the distance, you hear a Key and Peele fan shouting, Megan, Megan, your sweater! That's basically Dragon Con, just one big, warm pop culture hug. My best friend Angela and I are here for the first time. We met 15 years ago as Harry Potter fans, but since then, my experience with fandom as a graduate student and teacher has been more study than practice. The trip to Dragon Con is part of her scheme to get me out of my current funk. And she's not wrong. I've barely been out of the house in months, adjusting to a new role as a caregiver to my dad after his ALS diagnosis. I got the news in 2014, about a month before the ice bucket challenge went viral, precipitating a personal media blackout just to get a moment's break. When my dad finally wrote the email sharing the diagnosis with his siblings, it began, this is your ice bucket. As we check into the hotel, next to a couple towing a full rack of immaculately pressed gold Star Trek uniforms, the guy at the front desk admires Angela's hair. I love this color, he coos, referring to her mint green and teal highlights. He turns to me, giving an appraising sweep of his eyes. And what about you? Do you have a fun tattoo or something? <laughs> I... I shake my head. Nope, sorry. I know what he's thinking. From the outside, Angela and I look when the like when the cool artsy kid at school gets paired with the austere German exchange student. <laughs> and in the end, they both learn the true meaning of work and play and, I don't know, Christmas. <laughs> If I already look a little out of place next to her, I definitely look out of place next to a few thousand other people in town this weekend. Angela is determined to fix that. She has plans this weekend to drag me out of my style comfort zone. And drag is the right word, since I've been known to go from zero to drag queen in about 60 seconds with only a simple berry lip. It's a plot founded in the philosophy of so many movie makeover montages that transform women's lives the way boxing montages do for men. <laughs> and I'll be the first to admit, I'm a pretty blank canvas to work with. My local sandwich shop was not wrong when they started labeling all my orders bland. <laughs> my... <laughs> My favorite part of the Lego movie is the first 10 minutes when they sing everything is awesome and everyone follows the instructions. <laughs> Growing up, my hairstyle was the timeless, just released from a polygamous compound look. <laughs> when I watch The Handmaid's Tale, I know I should feel more fear. <laughs> at the dark vision of a fascist state. But I can't help my envy of government-regulated monochromatic wardrobes. <laughs> like anyone, I sometimes experiment when I travel. Like, 
I wear a hat. <laughs> For herself, Angela has packed three bold lipstick colors to try out on different days, black, green, and purple. But for me, someone who reserves mascara for births, deaths, and weddings, <laughs> she's chosen a more daring accessory, elf ears. <laughs> I don't know why she settled on elf ears, but I am, as always, along for the ride. Over the years, I've let Angela drag me along to everything from psychics to tarot readings and even past life regressions, which is how I know that advising me to focus on my root chakra, and learn to receive is my spirit guide's polite way of saying, girl, you need to get laid. <laughs> a sprightly young man dressed like a Lord of the Rings extra whose name tag reads something like Kringle or Caraway applies the pair of silicone elf ears to mine with sticky spirit gum. I admire my new pointy ears in the hand mirror while Angela transforms into a high-born night elf. And even I have to admit, I make a pretty cute forest elf. We haven't walked far when my vision blurs and my view of the busy hall skips like a busted film projector. Angela grabs me a soda while I sit for a moment, trying to ease the spinning room. It must be the humidity, I'm sure, or the closeness of the crowds, or the hours on our feet. We haven't eaten since a late breakfast of blueberry bagels, so I'm convinced if I can just make it to dinner, I'll be fine. There are restaurants only a block away, so we head down the escalators and out onto the street. Outside, I lean on Angela, heavier and heavier, until I slip unconscious to the pavement and have the first and, thankfully only, seizure of my life. I'm told later that my head thrashes back against the concrete and my jaw is pulled wide, my feet shaking so hard that my sandals fly off. The thing about having an emergency at a Comic-Con is that there's a high probability you'll be rescued by people in superhero costumes. <laughs> These are heroes who, on an average day, are more likely to save day-old donuts or fight bad grammar, but heroes <laughs> nonetheless. Several rush to hold my shaking head and call 911, creating a strange tableau for a growing audience of onlookers who break out in applause as I'm lifted onto a stretcher. I come back to consciousness slowly on that stretcher, and I don't know where or when I am. It's a terrifying feeling. The first thing I see is the silver-painted face of a street performer, sat on his upturned bucket and staring at me with the same disdain Betty Davis throws at Marilyn Monroe in All About Eve. Like my young upstart act is trespassing on his territory. <laughs> the second thing I see is Angela's face. And that, thank goodness, is familiar. Where are my shoes, I ask, as I wriggle my toes freely in the Atlanta air. She holds up my sandals, her expression frozen in that sort of cringing pity that is all teeth, topped with raised eyebrows trying to signal some measure of hope. It's a short ride to the nearby Grady Hospital downtown. 
On the way in, the security guard asks Angela if she has any weapons and doesn't laugh too loudly when she pulls out a replica of Rey's gun from Star Wars, The Force Awakens. <laughs> Later, as I wait on the stretcher for a room, I can hear Angela on the phone with my mom. Yeah, she's fine, she says, but she's kind of mad she's in the ER in elf ears. <laughs> In the hospital room, I'm questioned by a steady stream of nurses, doctors, and residents. They take a urine sample, then realize they never actually needed one. Angela laughs so hard at this that she can barely hold her phone straight to take a picture of my now superfluous pee cup, a shot which some perplexing Apple algorithm will later memorialize as her 2016 photo of the year. <laughs> In between examinations, we watch a series of documentaries on the history of Marvel Comics, airing serendipitously on the local PBS affiliate. Angela gestures wildly at the tiny hospital TV as she cheers on the company's leadership in representing diversity and emotional depth. You don't have to be strapped down to take Angela's Marvel Masterclass, but it helps. <laughs> I'm so grateful for that education, though since without it, I wouldn't have fully appreciated what a marvel Stan Lee was. After I'm discharged, we take an Uber back to the hotel while the driver regales us with stories of growing up with Will Smith and impassioned, gleeful predictions that Donald Trump will be our next president. Crumpled in the dark back seat in September 2016, I can't say which I believe less. <laughs> Back home in Phoenix, after a fresh round of tests, the cardiologist is as confused as everyone else. Everyone except Angela, who is convinced I am, quote, allergic to whimsy. <laughs> as the doctor explains, sometimes the brain can overreact to certain triggers and tell the rest of the body to man the lifeboats over nothing. He's seen triggers from a too-cold soda can to a high-pitched noise, but finds most incidents are sparked by anxiety. Anxiety, I ask. Anxiety about what? Well, he says with a withering sigh, were you anxious about wearing elf ears? <laughs> That was Amanda Kerberg. And here is Diana Martinez handling deep thoughts in the doctor's office with The Waiting Room. It's cold. Air conditioning that breathes 68 degrees and a stiff pink gown isn't very soothing on the nerves. The walls around me are painted in shades dull and dreary, holding still life paintings in equally mute color schemes. As chalky and outdated as they are, they're the only things my eyes seem to land on. A couple of weeks ago, I came to grips that I need to see a doctor for this lump. I actually noticed it years ago, but like so many things in my life, it's just easier to accommodate passive dangers. Like the once committed on again and off again dude who I just know will come around and We'll work things out. Who cares if he's verbally and kind of mentally abusive, right? I'll just keep trying, keep going back, 
maintain the cycle. Wrong, actually. You don't leave tumors alone and hope for the best. That passivity is what they feed on. No, they have to be removed so long as you know they're there. And that's why I'm here, I guess, waiting for a biopsy. They say I need, but if it were up to me, I'd still be walking around with it intact, like a little sidekick who cheers on my refutation. I like the blindness too much. 67 degrees. This second waiting room is always the worst. At least in the first one, you're fully dressed and maintain some kind of uh, connection to the outside world. You know, where manhandled magazines are left on empty chairs, the aloof receptionist hands you an interrogating clipboard, and daytime television spouts in the background while other numbers, I mean names, share in the waiting. But everything in here looks like it was taken out of an attic. A half inch of dust covers a stack of nameless books, a wooden end table holds a non-working lamp, and plastic plants pose as if they were told this is what the real ones do. Like two-foot-tall actors who were just alerted, it's showtime. This is all an act. All of these old and off-putting things in this in-between space to the right of the hallway and in front of the procedure room are placed. Trying to comfort its unwilling attendees, I managed to stare long enough at the all-star cast and its stagehands to keep from running out and far away. Or worse, face the fact that I have to be cut open. I almost came to this realization recently that something needs to change with my tolerance of these hazards. Like when the aforementioned ex yells in my face, hits the wall behind me in a heated argument, and then hours later, all is as normal. I've had my moments too, though, too many, from refusing to leave his house because I couldn't handle the fact that this plug has to be pulled to wanting to jump out of a fifth-story window one day because it was the only thing that made sense to stop this broken record. I'm sitting uncomfortably straight, too untrusting to let my guard down. I don't like this duality, ironic. But I'm onto it. It takes me for a fool trying to mask its purpose. The room knows why I'm here because it's expertly woven reality in a weak facade right into the wall-to-wall -wall carpeting. It's like the formal living room that some houses have, the sitting room. You sit and look, but you don't live there. It shows you what life looks like without being able to enter in. And this room, brisk, dry, clever, knows a different life is just what the doctor ordered. Cut out the tumor. Stop the cycle, see, heal. Don't be still life like us, be alive. And I think that's the point of this entire production. I'm distracted by its staleness, not comforted, not leisurely waiting, just here, bothered by its weak performance, preoccupied long enough to make it through the necessary wait the weight that leads to life. Damn, bravo room, encore. The creak of a door and a human voice finally breaks the blaring silence. We're ready for you. That was Diana Martinez. 
Closing out this episode, we have Brad Tobias taking a deep dive into the Phoenix drag scene in God Save the Queen. What you doing December 4th, the text read. (laughs) Knowing full well that on the other end of this message, I would be asked to volunteer for something, I coyly deflected with a bulletproof, don't know yet. What's up? Doing a charity turnabout show. You should be in it. We're raising Christmas money for the children. Ophelia instantly replied. The exchange was a gay Verizon spaghetti western standoff. Opposite me stood my friend Rich, but otherwise known to the Phoenix drag world as the one and only Ophelia Buns. (laughs) Cowboy emoji. Sparkle emoji. (laughs) Now, for those of you not familiar with the term turnabout show, this refers to taking non-performers, getting them dolled up, and putting them on stage in front of a jury of their peers to buck and twirl in, ideally, a radically out-of-character display of drag performance. This most often happens in the context of fundraising, so the prospect of witnessing select individuals assume a drag persona has the leverage to produce a very lucrative profit margin. (laughs) Let me make sure I'm good that day, I offered. Partially to legitimately make sure I was available, but partially to weigh this potentially impactful decision. I consulted with my friends for all of a few hours, What do you think, should I do it? Oh my God, what would I even do? (laughs) The usual considerations, right? I feigned hesitation, but I knew in my heart of hearts that this moment was too good to pass up, and low-key, it was an exciting prospect. Impact be damned. You see, when I moved from Connecticut to Phoenix in 2012, I put my creative self away in a box on the shelf to collect dust that I would hopefully brush off down the road when I had time to. The life of a PhD student offered little, if any, time for extracurriculars, and so I always trusted that my creative flame could be relit when the window of opportunity presented itself. And honey, this was not just a window. This was a rhinestoned double French door with a waterfront view of Elton John's Pride Weekend yacht party. But I digress. The dormant creative self that I knew dwelt within me was stirring. I'd been a theater kid since high school and felt comfortable in front of a crowd, so while I might consider myself to be an extrovert, With a half-decent sense of comedic timing, my friends still had never seen me perform. Sure, count me in, I told Buns, sealing the deal. And it was done. The initial adrenaline rush of the decision quickly wore off and was supplanted by the endless possibilities of what I had just signed up for. What am I going to perform? Who's going to put me in drag? Where do I get fake boobs? You know, the... Typical questions a 28-year-old man asks himself on a Tuesday morning. (laughs) One thing at a time, I told myself. (laughs) There's plenty of time and plenty of resources. First things first, okay. Who am I? 
the blank canvas was mine to paint, and the options were literally endless. I can't pick between two restaurants, much less have limited creative control over every attribute of a gender-bending fictitious entity. <laughs> Twas time to confer with the tribe. Cut to a small gathering on my friend's pool deck, considering aloud all of my lady options. And so from a cloud of brainstorming and dank pot smoke burst forth what will forever be known as The List, <laughs> AKA the cursory pool of drag names that befell me, including but not limited to <clears throat> Annie DeVito, <laughs> Patty O' Furniture, Val Qaeda, <laughs> and the near choice, summer clearance. <laughs> Honorable mention to my friend Tyler, who is otherwise known as Jean Benet Ramsme. The show was still a couple weeks off, and there was plenty of time to decide on the details, but the train was running full steam towards this show, and this had become a team effort. It was the night before the show, and most of the pieces were in place, except for one. Maybe three. Very external pieces that had to migrate north for the winter. It didn't escape me in this moment that I could have simply put on a billowy ball gown for tomorrow's performance and avoided this entire inquiry, but alas, I was here to achieve greatness. <laughs> and greatness happened to include a skin-tight, three-piece black leather ensemble that left little to the imagination. So after wandering into some saucy corners of the internet for one very particular tutorial, <laughs> I mastered the art of building an indoor play place and went to bed. <laughs> it was a big day tomorrow. All that was left was to transform. December 4th, 8 a.m. I reach for my Schick Norelco trimmer with great trepidation <laughs> to fully use and abuse it in ways neither it nor I ever anticipated. <laughs> Suffice to say, I'm half Italian, but I'm hard pressed to tell you which half. <laughs> you can do this. I whispered to the rudimentary grooming instrument. I don't want this for you either. <laughs> An entire play of the Lemonade album later, my thumb finally clicks the trimmer off. And the silence was deafening as I looked up at myself, intrigued, startled. and just alarmed by the naked mole rat staring back at me. 
While I wasn't altogether bothered by the extent to which I had trimmed, it was just a little lame that by the time I put on three pairs of dance tights and the rest of my costume, 80% of the grooming I had done was rendered completely unnecessary. <laughs> It was time. My friend Nick, otherwise known as Piper, agreed to meet me at the bar to assist in the transformation. I was the pre-stretched canvas to her Barb Ross, and after a seemingly endless three hours of makeup later, and those same three pairs of dance tights, there I emerged at six foot three, cherry red hair serving full hot topic hooker realness. <laughs> it was ready. It was time. I could see Ophelia's silhouette through the curtain, and my head began to spin with the countless ways the next five minutes might go down. To be honest, I was less phased by the drag transformation itself as I was more anxious about making good on a performance, though. All tea Piper did me right by that sickening mug. <laughs> Sorry, gay translation. Piper did a lovely job on my makeup. And then it happened. <clears throat> Welcome to the stage, Connecticut from Connecticut. <laughs> Ophelia roared, and the cheering quickly drowned out the introductory thumping bass of Britney's work, bitch. <laughs> I opted to lip sync to a hyperactive dance mix of all songs work, work, bitch, work from home, and so forth. My knees buckled as I waited for those first lyrics to hit, at which point I whipped open the curtains and it was time to slay the children. <laughs> Sorry, gay translation. It was time to entertain the room. <laughs> A reminder to myself that out of context, drag slang delivers an alarmingly incorrect message. <laughs> I had forgotten the feeling of being face-to-face -face with stage lights, the warmth, the deliberate chaos of doing eight things at once. The adrenaline, though, that was all too familiar. This, it was this chemical reaction, these fired synapses that I had put away in a box on that shelf back in 2012, and my primal performance instincts began resurfacing, one by one, hit every beat, improvise, make that eye contact, and we were here to raise money for LGBT youth after all, so I should probably collect some dollar bills. <laughs> I worked my way through and around the 80-person showroom, she, uh, sharing cheeky exchanges with both friends and strangers as they gawked at this newborn creature before them. Every dance move extended beyond the ends of my fingers and toes, and I knew every syllable of that goddamn mix. I was growing winded and growing very ready to call it a day. Several fistfuls of cash later, the mix was rounding out of Nikki's Anaconda and into Beyonce's formation, and I knew I was in the home stretch. I found my way back to center stage for my final act, and literally without missing a beat, the mix slid right back into those opening beats of Britney Spears' work, bitch. What was happening? Something had surely gone wrong. The DJ knows the song is almost over, right? Keep getting that money, girl! 
Ophelia's voice comes booming out of nowhere over the mic, and she was not wrong. People still had money outstretched. Make them believe you planned that shit, I told myself. So, lather, rinse, repeat. Somewhere in the primal depths of myself, I found the stamina for an encore, and when all was said and done, they were using a push broom to clear the stage of dollar bills. I was finally ushered off stage and collapsed into a well-deserved vodka soda, trying to process the blur of the previous 10 minutes. I wasn't exactly sure what I had just done, but I knew I had accomplished whatever it was that I had set out to do. Hashtag triumphant. <laughs> the glowing feedback I received was a lovely ego boost and all, but knowing that I could stick the landing on stage after all this time, that was so much sweeter. Later that week, I arrived at my office as per usual. Not two minutes into my opening routine, my pocket buzzes. It's a text from Ophelia. So, what you doing March 13th? That was Brad Tobias. And that's it for this episode of Barflies. Special thanks to my co-curator, Amy Silverman, podcast producer, Sarah Ventry, Charlie Levy, David Maroney, and the rest of the folks at Valley Bar, and to Calexico for our theme music. For more information about upcoming shows, visit barflies.org.